Good morning. Um, the scripture reading today is from Luke 22, verses 31 to 38. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is the word of the Lord. We've taken a break from our Roman series and we spend three weeks now uh, considering Jesus heading towards the cross, which will um, find its culmination in Good Friday and on Easter Sunday morning. We're not there yet. Hang on. Oh, I'm talking about the... the... There we go. This gives you the context uh, of the three Sundays and, and how they fit together. The main theme is that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. So while everything else is going on, while you're living your lives, while I have the things that are important to me, and I know that you're not really thinking so much about the things that are important to me, you're thinking about the things that are important to you. And uh, so we all have our worlds and our concerns. And as then, so now, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. And so we have ourselves cast in the, on these three Sundays, and I have it outlined for you there, as a follower among other followers, so that was last Sunday, uh, the group of Jesus' followers and disciples, what, are, what's, what concerns do they have as he has set his face towards Jerusalem? Today we look at that from the context of an individual disciple, someone who has said, I've put my faith in you, Jesus Christ. I will live for you. I'm committed to you. And we look at this encounter between Jesus and Peter. And then uh, next Sunday, Palm Sunday, we look at ourselves as part of a crowd. Easter is two weeks away now. Meanwhile, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. There's a... This, you know who this is? It says it right there, so now you do. Jean Vanier. He's 86 years old now, and uh, he's a Canadian hero. They, they do exist. And as much as I like hockey and the rest, you know, there's not a lot of sense in making hockey players into heroes, but people like Jean Vanier, you, they, you could call them heroic. Do you, do you know who he is? Do you know of him? He's the son of a, of a governor general from many years ago. And recently Jean Vanier won $2.1 million. He gets that prize to himself. It's a prize uh, given to an individual. But he won't ever take a dime of that money. Uh, it's called the Templeton Award. And 
he, he gets it for running the charities that he runs called L'Arche, these communities for disabled people. This is an organization with uh, branches in 35 different countries, 147 locations. So Jean Vanier is successful and he wins an award. Well, he doesn't win the award for that success. He wins the award because he has uh, basically given his life in the service of others. I, I meant to bring this book up. Oh, I've got a book by Jean Vanier, and, and you should read it if you haven't, on, uh, on the Gospel of John. It's like a living commentary. It's, it's, it's in some ways so much better than other commentaries that can seem kind of academic. Uh, it's called Drawn into the Mystery of Jesus, and this man has, has written this, this commentary uh, on, on the book of John. He has, says things like this, The way in which you discover your humanity is by embracing weakness and sharing your life with others. In 1964, Vanier, living in France, uh, went to see his priest. And when he was meeting with his priest, he saw uh, a number of people, uh, disabled people, who were living in not very good conditions. In fact, he called them terrible. And so he, did, he couldn't do much to change the world for all of them. But he basically went and he bought a small house in this village in France. And he set it up so that two of these disabled adults could come and live with him. And from that was born L'Arche. And now 147 locations. People not just caring for the disabled, but living with the disabled. Vanier says the most fundamental need of every person is to be loved to be valued. I could go through every person in this room, whether you are successful in the eyes of the world or not, and I could say amen to that. That's the most fundamental need of every person is to be loved and to be valued. Vanier will say things like, if, if we can find one person who will, in, in, in effect, uh, care for you, cheer you on, not empty cheer, you know what I mean, but, but have your back and, and have you in their minds, then we can begin to help that person who feel, felt so abandoned or lost. Vanier seeks to live out these values by becoming smaller, not bigger. That's why he's a hero of mine, but that's why not many of you know who he is. He says, the compulsion of our world is to have power. It is in letting go of power that we see our humanity and the humanity of others. Do you hear what I said? It's in letting go of power that we see our humanity and the humanity of others. His service of the disabled is defined not by top-down. In other words, we're going to come and do all these programs for the disabled people. Here's what we can do. And we think of ourselves up here and those in need as down here. Rather, he set up communities where you simply live together and care for one another and acknowledge and celebrate the gifts that every single person has, not just those who are more powerful. I start with this because for many people, this remains a struggle. We measure success in our world in terms of influence, power, money, prestige, status, and numbers. Jean Vanier, compelled by his Christian faith, actually lives a life that is not defined in such a way. It's possible. He would say he lives this way because this is the way of Jesus Christ. In the book that I'm now supposed to hold up, that's what I had in my mind as I was preparing the sermon, in this book right here, he says this, Followers of Jesus will continually be caught up in the paradox. Shepherds, teachers, and leaders are necessary, and they have power. But how should they exercise that power in the spirit of the Gospels? How should they give a clear message about the truth of Jesus' message? How should they speak out against the powers of wealth? 
How should they be servant leaders who humbly give their lives? The need for power, acclaim, and honors can undermine the message of Jesus and lead to a road of compromise with the values of society. We all imagine that if we had more money, more influence, and more power, we would be able to set things right. I, Vanier says, am very familiar with the need to compromise, for it's something that I sense in myself as well as in my own communities. It's sometimes easier for me to accept the experience of being acclaimed for a book that I've written. See, I've done that already. Or a talk that I've given than to just sit down poorly and humbly and share my life lovingly with my brothers and sisters in L'Arche. We all have to avoid getting caught up in the power game in order to exercise authority humbly in a spirit of service as Jesus did. We need the humble, loving force of the Holy Spirit. I start with this because Jean Vanier is truly counterculture. In a world where counterculture is so often defined by, you know, hipsters or, or te- some kind of technology, he truly is counterculture. Humanity found in weakness, not strength, a reflection of the love of Jesus in humility. I start with this because I want to offer today a painful picture of how we fail to see in in such a way. And we often, or we can, turn our devotion to Jesus into a quest for significance, power, comfort, security. We still don't comprehend that the strength of Jesus Christ is fully demonstrated in his sacrifice. We are afraid of losing control. We are so uncomfortable with all forms of weakness. We can think... This is important to me for you to hear. We can think that aging is a diminishment instead of growth. If, if this church simply got a hold of that truth, that aging is not a diminishment, but it's growth, the values of this church and maybe our community would begin to change. So this scene. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38, focusing obviously on the first few verses there. The context is the Last Supper. Right, moving now to just before the cross and the crucifixion so that every encounter is packed with meaning and every word is filled with drama and power. You know, and I want to teach you this each year and remind you, the Gospels uh, move at kind of a breakneck speed until they get to the week before the crucifixion and then every Gospel slows down. More than 25% of the Gospels are the last week of Jesus' life. So we should uh, uh, turn our focus there as well. And it is true, and I know this makes some people uncomfortable, but the thing, the, the, Jesus moving up like this, you know, attracting the crowds and all these healings and feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 or whatever, uh, that's, a, that's a line that seems to go like this, which is how we see status and power and, and success. But, but as Jesus moves closer to the cross, there are fewer and fewer of those miraculous events. Jesus now at the Last Supper, so aware of his sacrifice. And when I pray to God, when I think about Jesus Christ, when I pray to him, I can say, Lord, what was in your mind when you went to speak with Peter? And the Last Supper, you must have been absolutely consumed by the awareness of the cross. And yet here were your followers. Jesus, you so filled with what you were about to do and experience And your disciples still, like me, so clueless. Came here two weeks before Easter. And we're still so clueless as to what is happening. Last week we looked at the scene of the disciples. Well, we looked at a number of scenes. But one of the scenes was right after Jesus uh, reminds them of his death. And seems not to take advantage of 
of a miracle that he's just performed, which could get him all kinds of acclamation and adulation, crowds following him. He turns instead, pulls his disciples aside and says, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. It's not a great uh, PR move on his point. And they don't understand it. In fact, the very next scene, they begin arguing as to who among them is the greatest. Now, that sounds more like us. Hierarchy and power and who gets to prestige. Meanwhile, Jesus, that's our structure for these three weeks. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And last week, it was in Luke chapter 9 that this scene I just described takes place. They argue about who will be the greatest. And today, we now see ourselves rather than just one of the followers, like part of a group, we see ourselves in Peter as an individual and our declaration of faith in Jesus. This is the scene, the Last Supper. And if you read, if you look in in your Bibles, in the context of, of this chapter 22, right around this same time, there's another argument by the disciples about who's the greatest. Now, when this takes place in, in, because we have four Gospels, right? So there are scenes told in the Gospels, and sometimes a story is placed in a certain place in John, like chronologically, but that same story seems to be in a different time in Matthew or in Luke. So, you know, like a woman coming and anointing Jesus, that takes place in, in one Gospel here and in another, another Gospel here. But what do you do when it's the same Gospel writer that seems to have the same story twice? Well, you do this, right? Maybe that happened more than once. It seems to be that one of the things the disciples did repeatedly is argue about who was the greatest among them. They did it just before Jesus pulls them aside, or just after, and Jesus pulls them aside and says, uh, I'm, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die. They argue about who's the greatest. And here, they're arguing about who would be the greatest again. I wonder sometimes why Jesus doesn't at them and us simply just shake his head. You people. In John chapter 13, this is after the washing of the feet of his disciples. Jesus shows them his way of humility, and they're still caught up in hierarchy, status, prestige, and power. So much is happening now. Jesus turns to Peter in our little passage for this morning, and Jesus predicts Peter's denial. If you think of your Christian faith primarily as what you do for God, you're going to understand the denial in in a certain way. Oh, Peter sure screwed up. He sure failed. If you think about your Christian faith primarily in, in the understanding of what Jesus does for you, you'll hear this story slightly differently. Actually, a lot differently. And you'll focus on Jesus' love instead of Peter's failure. And Jesus' love is demonstrated right well before Peter's actual denial. Jesus, as I've described, must have in his mind what's actually, what would be more real to him than even the events that he's experiencing right now, the Last Supper. You know this because you have a dentist appointment on Tuesday and you think about that now. Jesus knew that he was going to give his life, that he was going to be tortured, that he was going to face the cross, And still his disciples are before him. And somehow he has the compassion to go to Peter and say, Simon, Simon. He could have not not predicted his denial. Just allowed it to happen. 
So why did he predict Peter's denial and warn and tell Peter about it? Sometimes religious thinkers can turn it into this. Peter, it is not that. If I have my friend Rick, and I want him to know how much I care for him and love him, but yet I see something troubling on the horizon or whatever, I might use the same kind of language that Jesus used here. Because if you read it, he says, Simon, Simon, the devil is after all of you. Simon uses his name three times. So if I said, Rick, Rick, and then again after a short description, Rick, you would know how it is that I'm speaking to my friend. Simon, Simon, the devil is after you, but I have prayed for you, Simon. You will deny me three times before even the morning comes. And Simon says no. Peter says no. Peter can't hear of it. Simon and Peter, as you know, two names, the same disciple. Jesus is preparing Peter so that Peter's failure doesn't swallow Peter up entirely. And Peter is rejecting this even as a possibility. Please hear this. Peter's denial is not a threat to Jesus. Do you understand that? If you have been taught that this is like Peter doing something bad to Jesus, I mean, I understand that in some ways it is. But Peter's denial is not a threat to Jesus and his mission. It won't hinder it a tiny shred. So why does Jesus warn Peter of the denial? Because the denial is a threat to Peter. I've prayed for your faith, Peter. The denial threatens to swallow Peter up, not Jesus. And Jesus compassionately warns him. How much anguish can be heard then when after this warning Peter says, No, no, no. I've given my life for you. I and I... I mean, I would just think it funny if I didn't know it as painful. No, 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 I have given my life for you. I'll follow you. Jesus, you want to know something? I'll die for you. He's saying this to Jesus the night before the crucifixion. Peter has been through this before, recorded in Matthew chapter 16. Crowds, this is some time before this, and the crowds were following Jesus But as we mentioned, the closer Jesus got to the cross and his true mission, the more the crowds dissipated. And in an encounter like this, after, uh, I think it was the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew chapter 16, the crowds are dissipating, and and, uh, Jesus says to his followers, who do people say that I am? And a lot of answers are there. Well, you're Elijah or John the Baptist, come back. Or what about you, Jesus says. And it's Peter that always jumps to answer. And the answer is beautiful. What about you? Peter says, I say that you are the Christ. It's actually Simon who says this. And Jesus says, Simon Bar-Jonah. Here, you can go in Matthew 16 and look. The names for Peter are, are they're not that many. It's basically Simon and Peter. But Simon Bar-Jonah, you are blessed. 
And then he says, I'm going to call you Peter because that means rock. That's how Peter gets this name. I'm going to call you Peter and on this on this I will build my church. Now some people think that means that he'll build the church on Peter. It's more likely in the biblical account that what he means is he'll build the church on the confession that he's the Christ. Peter, you said this and I'm going to build my church on this and now I'm going to call you Peter. And what does Peter do in Matthew 16? Jesus, soon after this, pulls the veil back for Peter. Now that Peter has confessed that he's the Christ, which, by the way, if you look in Matthew chapter 16, are evangelical churches that just judge themselves on how many people show up, which is, at least on some levels, worldly. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter says, you are the Christ, look at how it ends. He says, don't tell anyone. What? But Peter, you seem to get this, so he pulls back the veil for Peter and begins to talk to Peter about what he's going to do, about the cross and his death. And in this scene, Peter says, no. In fact, the words in Matthew 16, Peter takes Jesus aside. This is wonderful picture here. Takes Jesus aside when Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. Peter takes Jesus aside, and the words are in that text. You can see them. And he rebukes Jesus. Wonderful. No, you will not die. I will not allow you to die. And this is where Jesus says, speaks forcefully to Peter, but calls Peter, not, he's not saying Peter is this, but uses a different name. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. It was not that Peter did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He just said that he did. It was that his view of the Messiah was a total distortion, as ours can be. We so often still want a superhero Messiah. And I hear the words of Jean Vanier, who says, we can say yes to a powerful Jesus who does big things. We so often say no to a Jesus who is weak and calls for love. And he continues, we are infuriated by weakness. We divide our world between those who succeed and those who are losers or victims. Our world enjoys success and spectacle. Just over a week ago, I heard a story, a news story, from the Ontario Hockey League. The OHL is implementing now a mental health program to try to identify uh, young people who are struggling with mental health difficulties. This is in reaction to a young man who was cut from a AAA team and killed himself in reaction. Obviously, he had invested his future in this. The future was removed. He would never be what he was hoping he would be, and that was the end of it for him. Vanier says, we think that to be small or sick or dying or old, we think this is anti-life. We want to be powerful and strong, but we live in an illusion Peter is living in an illusion. He thinks that the Messiah is going to come and just do away with everything that is opposed. Peter is hiding behind what he sees as his power and declaring his power for Jesus' sake. But the power of Jesus Christ is not exercised in destroying earthly enemies and establishing an earthly kingdom. Rather, the power of Jesus Christ is exercised in giving himself for the life of the world. We can sympathize with Peter. Peter wants to do what is right. 
He's motivated in the same way that you, sometimes me and others, can be motivated. Declaring his faith and announcing his commitment. A commitment of strength. I won't let that happen to you, Jesus. Or as we sometimes call it in this church, the ignorance of the, don't worry, Jesus, we've got your back. Remember from last week, Jesus needs no defending. He will accomplish what he came to accomplish. The question is, for you, for me, and for Peter, do you trust in him? It is not your faith that saves you. It is Jesus Christ, your Lord. Peter is not relying on Jesus, but on his faith. We can sympathize with him. He is trusting not in what Jesus is doing because he can not even see it. He's trusting instead in what he is intending to do for Jesus. It can sound right. We can go through the room here and get the commitments to Jesus Christ. What are you going to do for God? I'd like more of that in a way, trust me. I would welcome just about every one of you saying, you know what, I think I need to do more for God or for the church or whatever. I think it's a good thing. But I would also help you to see that that's not where your faith lies. Your salvation. What I want first for you and for me is an awareness that our life is found in what Jesus has done for us and for this world. Not in what we build, not in our earthly success that we would trust even in self-sacrifice and weakness. Our Lord Jesus Christ takes up a way that is unlike the way of just about everything else that you think. I will be handed over into the hands of men, he says. I'll give my life. It's still troubling for us, but it is an invitation to see that this is the way of true life in the world. That we can put our faith in him. So, to close, what would I have you do? You always want things to do from sermons, right? Do you? People tell me that. I mean, honestly, I think that what I'd love is just to get to a place where we listen to the Holy Spirit. And, and But it's nice to have, here's three things to do, so I'll, I'll do it for you. Number one, renunciation as part of faith. This is always part of faith, a letting go. What do you need to let go of in this world? This is the season of Lent. This is one of the practices of Lent, that you, you give something up. I mean, the best, the easiest thing to give up, maybe it's not easy, but it, it's, it's a simple exercise, is to give up money. So something as silly as tipping too much, giving money away, give something away of value, renunciation. Because we constantly are challenged or, or the voice is always there that we would pick up the values of the ways of the world, not the ways of God. So renunciation includes money, status, influence, power. Give it up. Now, for each of you, that might be different. Might be something at work that you're giving up. Might be something at home. Money, status, influence, and power. I thought of this when I heard the story of, of the... Um, and I don't know if any of you live there. I don't. Well, some of you must. You live in the Seymour area. But um, this home they wanted to do in the Seymour area for recovering alcoholics. And there's, you know, a town meeting and, and people come and 
no, we can't have this here. And it's not that simplistic anymore. Thankfully, there are other voices saying, well, hang on a sec here. Maybe we should actually talk about this instead. But in that kind of conversation, and many of you own homes, one of the, one of the things that always comes up is, here we go, property value. Because if it threatens our property value, that's it, the end of the conversation. Now, in the case of the Home for Recovering Alcoholics, it was basically demonstrated that it doesn't threaten property value. But I was waiting for the voice to say, I think it should go ahead even though it threatens our property value because it's a good thing. See how countercultural that is? You never hear it. Would you allow such a thing? Renunciation. Secondly, the daily practice of trust. A prayer. Try this. Dear God, help me to trust in you today. Dear God, help me to trust in you today. And finally, whether this is in the news you watch or, or uh, something else, um, you see it in your own community, places you go and live, look for weakness. Look for weakness and value it. Don't just, you know, feel sorry for someone. Look for weakness and allow that weakness to teach you of the things of Jesus Christ who emptied himself and went to the cross. So I pray with my friend who's come before me, Peter, Simon. Dear Heavenly Father, help me to see what you have done in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Turn your back on the things that we so often value for the life of the world and for my life and help me to put my trust in you, not in the things of man. Amen. I'm going to pray for the communion now. We take communion each week during Lent. And so um, uh, we, we always say that you're welcome to receive the communion if you know Jesus or if you would like to know Jesus. I often remind you that one of the ways that I've come to this conclusion that this table is a table of inclusion, not exclusion, is the reminder in my own personal spirituality that Jesus gave communion to Judas. So, you know. But do this at least. As you take the bread, remember that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, broke it, and said, this is my body given for you. See what he was doing for you and for Peter? Peter took the bread that night. And yet right after, he was confused. This is my body broken for you. And then the cup. This represents, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. So you take, you receive, you declare your faith in Jesus Christ. So Heavenly Father, bless this communion, we pray. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.